0: I finished seminary. Last night, I actually preached in a shirt that said unemployed, but I thought I'd be a little more Sunday morning appropriate today. Some of you asked what I'm going to be doing, and uh, I'm going to be teaching one theology section in the fall at Bethel, see if I can infiltrate into those 20-year-old heads and uh, bring some transformation there. But also, we're just praying about some different opportunities. I'm trying to actually be laid back this summer. I've never really done that before. So I don't really know how. And uh, we're praying about a lot of opportunities and really, really trying to get to know our neighbors and love them. So that's on the agenda for now, and we'll see what happens next. But for now, unemployed. It's cool. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this community, um, for my community here. And I thank you that me and my family can be a part of it. And today we just ask that you would be so present and all of us come with different needs and burdens, callings, visions, concerns. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have the ability to meet each one of us where we are. So it's my prayer today that you would take uh, your words in the scriptures and my words and apply them to each heart and touch each of us in a place where um, only you can touch. And we just commit to opening ourselves to you today. And we thank you that you care Enough to show up with us in community. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it seemed to me that a recent seminary graduate should have something very profound to share, right? So I was pondering all of the profound thoughts that I have on a regular basis and trying to decide just which one would be most impressive. Which one would I want to show up with to say, look how much I know? So I was thinking about the papers I've written this year. And I've written some profound papers. Boring, boring, boring papers, too. And I thought, well, I could talk about Karl Barth, one of the most eminent theologians of the 20th century. Very serious and somber. Or I could talk about propositionalism or apophaticism or post-modernity. I could talk about Jacques Derrida and how his deconstruction has really influenced how we think about language and reality. Or I could talk about how divine action might be related to quantum indeterminacy. (laughs) Wouldn't that be exciting? But then I had another thought. I had another thought relating to a serious piece of art from the 1960s. And that serious piece of art is called Night of the Living Dead. In Night of the Living Dead, which was a fine movie made in 1968, Zombies come to life. People come out of their grave and turn into zombies. I'm going around, go around looking for people to eat. Sorry if there's small children in here. <clears throat> the only way that they can be stopped is by a blow to the head. Now, some of you might not be fortunate enough to have seen this piece of art. <laughs> now, why, you're asking, would someone choose to talk about the Night of the Living Dead? You may not notice it right away, but actually my life has many parallels with this zombie-like behavior. It is true that I have spent much of my life walking like a zombie toward the grave. I didn't look like it all the time. You couldn't always tell. A lot of times I looked like this. But there was always a part of me that was walking like a zombie toward the grave. It looked very much, did you like the one whose hair was kind of going like this? Yeah, you saw her. That was me. To understand what on earth this has to do with my life, you have to know two things about my upbringing. One thing is that I had lots of stuff growing up. I lived in a really nice house in the suburbs, and we had nice vacations with lots of different sorts of boats and toys, and we had Nintendo games when it was first invented, and we had push-button phones the day after they came out. So we had toys and stuff. We were surrounded by it. The other thing you need to know is that I was surrounded by church. I went to church always, three times a week, religiously. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and... This is a Baptist crowd. Speak to me. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We were there. So this was it. Jesus and stuff I was raised with. Materialism and Christianity went side by side. This was my world. So when I left home at the age of 17, there was a script all written out for me. Maybe some of you had the same script handed to you. I needed to find a husband. And then we really needed to set about pursuing Stuff, the attainment of stuff. And so we had to buy a house, and then we had to get some cars, and then we had to get a bigger house, and we had to get some more cars. And in order to make sure the Jesus part was in there, we had to go to church, maybe not three times, maybe just two, and on bad weeks, maybe just once, but certainly had to be at church, had to be working in the nursery. So this was my script. And I set about with very serious that I was going to do this. By the time I was 20, I'd found the husband part. Woo, got that happening. And then we went about getting the house, getting the stuff, buying the cars, finding the church. We arrived here in the Twin Cities in 1996. And we built a house out in the Stillwater area that had five bedrooms and five bathrooms, lots more space than four people needed, in a nice neighborhood where all the lawns looked really good, had two nice new cars, two nice new kids, proud of both, cars and the kids, Kids were decked out in Gap. It was looking fine. Well, shortly after we arrived here, we walked into Woodland Hills Church at Harding High School. Should have run screaming from the building. (laughs) And there was a little message there at Woodland Hills Church. Because what we found out when we walked in is that really we weren't pursuing everything that God wanted us to. We weren't living the victorious Christian life. We were actually walking like zombies toward the grave. We had bought into a script that someone else had written. Now, if you looked at us from the outside, many of you did, we looked fine, we had some good clothes on, we had a good marriage, our kids were well-behaved. It wasn't like you looked and said, there's the zombies, because things were going quite well. Whether you were my best friend or whether you just knew me from church, I wasn't having any big problems. My life was quite fine, thank you very much. And actually, this is the big subtle lie. Because you walk around and you're doing really well and you're paying your bills and your marriage is okay and yeah, you have a problem here and there, but pretty much you're fine. And so why would you do anything different? Why wouldn't you just keep on the track you're on? Why wouldn't you keep living out the script that had been written for you? Well, you would, and that's what I did. So, I was being controlled by someone else's decisions, by a script that had been handed to me when I was young. And I had bought into this idea that the American dream is what we pursue and we bring Jesus along for the ride. So I'm going to mention some things. All of us maybe have our own version of the American dream. I want to share some of the defining characteristics of my American dream. One of them is you need to buy the best of whatever you can afford. Don't buy the Chevy if you can buy the Porsche. Mortgage yourself to the hilt is another important quality of this lifestyle. And if you ever start feeling a little ease in the financial pressure, get a bigger house and a bigger mortgage. You need to have your lawn looking like the greens at Augusta all the time. Slave over it. Die for it. It's so worth it. (laughs) Replace anything that's old as soon as possible, except your spouse. But in terms of, like, cars, (laughs) and maybe in some neighborhoods that's kind of the gig, In terms of cars, no rust, no dents, certainly no duct tape. (laughs) Labels on things are very important. Don't buy the cheaper no-label brand, even though it looks exactly like the thing that costs three times as much and carries someone's name on it. If you're offered a promotion at work, even if you don't want the job, don't like the job and it will cause you to be separated from your family, take it anyway because promotions mean you're important and you get more money. You need to be involved in your kids' lives in such a way that you're driving them around to 25 things seven days a week at all times. And not just driving them, really, but participating with them, going to the practices, all of them, yelling from the sidelines. This should take up 40 to 50 hours a week. Because, you know, important people are busy people. So it's important to stay busy. And that way, at the neighborhood barbecues, when you all get together and everyone starts complaining about how busy they are, You're right on spot. The two important considerations when we had to make a decision were, what are the financial ramifications and how will it make us look? This is the world I was raised in. This is the world I was marching along in, just like a zombie. And I was marching toward my grave because we all know that with each day that goes by, we're closer and closer. And I was in serious need of a blow to the head. (laughs) Big time. Now, in the movie, the blow to the head results in death, and the cool thing about the kind of blow to the head that we get in Christ is, number one, it's kind of a loving blow, and number two, it awakens us to new life, not to death, and this is what I needed. Woodland Hills really was a place that challenged our thinking, but it wasn't just sitting here in this big group where our thinking was challenged. This big group caused us to go home, and I started pursuing, well, what does it even mean to follow Jesus? If it isn't just I tack him onto the side of my jet ski or whatever else I'm doing, if it's supposed to be more substantive than that, then what might it look like? What are the possibilities? Could I live a life that looks different than the people all around me? You know how in America we pride ourselves on individualism? I don't know if we're very individualistic really. Because if you look at the movie, I thought it represented at least my world pretty well. Oh, everyone's buying a new car. Oh, it's time to get a bigger house. Oh, green cars are in now, we better get a different one. The mall's open. <laughs> Come with me to the mall. This is not individualism. <laughs> this is kind of scary samism. And this was my world, how do you stand against it? Everybody's going this way, well, let's go with them. But you know what, when Jesus lived, he said, hey, I'm going this way. And if you're willing to receive that blow to the head, he'll take you with him. But it's a hard journey. I started looking in the Bible and finding certain verses. Actually, lots and lots of verses. I'll share a couple with you. In Romans 8, we find Paul saying, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That's with Jesus. I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Find another verse in Mark 8. He called the crowds with his disciples, Jesus did, and he said to them, if any of you want to be my disciples... Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Well, my goodness, those verses, and many, many like them, all through the epistles, through the gospels, have been there the whole time. The Bible's been around a while, and the verses have been there the whole time. Somehow I had missed them, about suffering, about denying myself. Because I wasn't denying myself, and I wasn't experiencing suffering. And here's the way around that. In the church I was raised in, when you read verses about suffering, what they basically said is, isn't that too bad that in the first century, Christians had to suffer and be persecuted to their, for their faith? And isn't it great that today we don't have to be? Woo-hoo! And yes, it is great that today we aren't persecuted by the government for our faith, but that's not all that Jesus and Paul are referring to when talking about suffering, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, on the other hand, when it's talked about denying yourself, They would usually say, this means denying yourself certain pleasures. You can't dance, go to the movies, drink, smoke, have fun, smile. I mean, how far did it go? Denying yourself kind of meant being kind of ascetic towards certain practices. Get these things out of your life. So the vision of following Jesus became primarily defined in, okay, live a good Christian middle-of-the-road life and don't do certain things. And in that way, you're avoiding the suffering and you are denying yourself by not going to the movies. Somehow, I think the vision perhaps could be a little bit bigger than that that Jesus had for us. Because what happened to me is I could totally ignore, totally ignore the calling to suffer for Christ, to share in his sufferings, to deny myself. I could just ignore those. And I could explain them away. And I could just walk through life toward the grave let's go to the mall everyone else is hating their neighbors let's do that too oh there's a barbecue let's go to that but let's not talk to the people we don't like the message is so strong all the time it comes through this is the message of the schools and the message of some churches and the message of our neighborhood and the message of the tv be the zombie and we only get one life what a cliche we only get one life But I was walking through the zombie, like a zombie, toward the grave in my one life, the only one I have. Does anyone here have a goal to be a zombie? Does anyone want to waste the one life? Does anyone want to work at a job that totally does not fulfill you and doesn't answer your calling just because? Does anyone want to be 70 and say, well, I'm glad I was able to do that dumb thing the last 70 years. (laughs) This is not the vision. When we sign on to follow Jesus, is anybody saying, boy, I hope almost nothing changes. I hope I make the same decisions I would have anyway. I hope nobody can tell the difference between me and my neighbor. I hope I'm not transformed. And for some of us, this is like me, it's a material thing. Oh, I have to have stuff, 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 and I'll attack Jesus on the side. For some of it's, I, I don't wanna like those people, I'm not gonna like those people go away a little, and you're a zombie that way. For others of you have a zombie cart. You're walking like a zombie, you're walking slower because you have a big cart behind you. And it's filled with shame and condemnation because you don't know really that the good news is that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You haven't been awakened to the victorious Christian life and you need a blow to the head to say, the stuff ain't going to get it. The shame isn't from Jesus. And you have a radical opportunity to love people self-sacrificing that can only come through Jesus. And we miss it because we're walking with everybody else like a zombie toward our grave. Paul says in Philippians 1, he challenges us, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is it just that we don't go to movies, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't dance, we don't have fun? Can we define the vision that Christ had for us primarily in negative terms? That's what I was doing. And I had successfully arrived here as a pretty well-to-do Non-smoking, rarely drinking, occasionally dancing, zombie. Do zombies dance? I don't think it would look good. That was me. This was my zombie life. And I was in serious need of a blow to the head. And you know, the blow to the head that Jesus offers is so gracious. And sometimes it's a still small voice, and sometimes it's kind of loud because we're not listening. And sometimes the blow to the head is just a little tap at first. But God loves us enough to pursue us with the vision that he has for us because he longs for us to live a non-zombified, is that a word? A non-zombified, transformed life. We only have the one, and he has such a vision for it. See, my biggest fear, even when I was small, is that I would die without making an impact. I really looked around and I saw all these people, and it just seemed like you could go to work every day, all day, And and nothing ever changed. And then eventually you were old and you died. This is through the eyes of a child. And I didn't want to have a life that didn't make a difference, didn't make an impact. But in the process of going through life, I had somehow confused the American dream with something substantive. I had confused possessing things with the call of Jesus. I thought they went right alongside one another. For me, I think the American dream, that materialism, was something actually quite satanic in my life. I feel like that vision, that script that someone else wrote stole my life from me. And I was 30 before I woke up and saw the movie of myself. I was the woman with blonde hair. And I saw the movie and I went, that's me. Now what do I do? I don't want to keep walking in the same way with everyone else until I step into the grave with my arms filled with shopping bags. I want something more. And you open up the Bible and you find out what the something more is. The something more is about loving people radically, about being transformed, about bringing healing in Jesus' name, about reconciling broken relationships, about experiencing community that transformed, about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, living with him daily. It's not a small vision, and it's not a negative vision. It's defined in terms of what you can do and will do and what God calls you to, not in terms of what you can't do and shouldn't do and ought not participate in. But instead of this wonderful vision... Instead of walking and pursuing and running, running after the vision and embracing and saying, who cares about everything else? Instead of that, I was headed for the mall. I was headed for small things. I was headed for a little vision. I had days filled with trivia. I didn't sometimes even know my neighbors' names through all the neighborhoods I've lived in. So what does it mean to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, for Paul's audience, it really was about persecution. The Roman government was very mean to Christians in those first centuries. And they were being killed for their faith. And the call to live a life worthy meant get together in community, love one another, show the world something different, face death with courage, and consider it a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. For Paul himself, that worthy life involved staying single. It involved loneliness, shipwreck, hardship, struggle difficulty, persecution of many kinds, hatred. This was not an easy life that Paul was called to, but it also involved contentment and joy. Remember, he's the one who said he's learned to be content in whatever situation. And one of my contemporary favorites, Mother Teresa, what did living a life worthy mean for her? It meant serving the broken and the dying and the homeless, the street people, confronting AIDS head-on and hands-on. It meant living her life wearing literally a $1 sari. I remember when Mother Teresa died about the same time as Princess Diana. They had a picture in the paper of Mother Teresa and her $1 sari shaking hands with the much taller Princess Diana wearing the you know dollars or $4,000 suit. Now, I'm not preaching against Princess Diana. She was cool. But I used to look at that picture. I actually cut it out and put it in my refrigerator. And I would look at it, and I would think, which life am I pursuing? Because I have a lot of the Princess Diana, let's pursue the suit part, let's pursue the nice clothing, the good hair, the People magazine, photo ops. But in my heart of hearts, I wanted to pursue the $1 sorry, the life of service. How do you snap out of a culture that asks you to pursue the princess lifestyle and decide to be the one on the street? You know, my brother-in-law has a friend, very wealthy, who went to visit Mother Teresa before she died in her um, charity mission in India. And he was so overwhelmed. He spent some time there and overwhelmed, not just at the work of Mother Teresa, but just at the people they were serving and the brokenness. And at the end of his visit, he got out his checkbook and he said, I want to give you a million dollars and I want you to use it for whatever you need to meet needs here. And Mother Teresa reached over and closed his checkbook and said... I need you to go home and love your wife. And he knew she was right. Now, am I okay? Take the check and then tell him to go home and love his wife. (laughs) Doesn't that seem more logical? But see, Mother Teresa lived according to a different set of kingdom principles. And Mother Teresa knew that taking the check and then telling him to go home and love his wife wasn't going to have the power. And she also knew that Jesus had met every and all of her needs at all times. And if the primary need in this man's life was a really powerful message that said, live by a different set of values, go home and love your wife, she was going to do it in faith. Do I have enough faith to pursue the hard message and let go of the million dollars? I don't know. I would like to say that I'm quite pathetic compared to Mother Teresa. And I want to tell you a few stories of how God has worked in my family to help us pursue a different set of values. How has God set about the task with me of giving me a serious blow to the head? Now, I don't want to talk about this. This is the hard thing when you get up in front of people because what I want to talk about right now is let's lapse into a little talk about divine action and quantum indeterminacy. Because then we can kind of put it over there and we can look at it and talk about it, and I can say profound things. you can be impressed even if you want. But Jesus told stories and drew people into the kingdom. And I have been so broken by the work of Jesus and the grace of him in my life, and I know that that's the power, and I know that's that's what God wants me to share. So I just want to start out by saying, your journey does not shouldn't look like mine at all. that God is so creative. He's given us all different spiritual gifts, calling, resources, passions, brokenness. We, he works in all of those things differently with us. So I'll share my a few points of my journey and then you need to turn that back on yourself and say, what's the journey you have for me, God? Because it's different than mine. And part of it is my deal, like I said, I'm raised as the material girl. So of course, that has to be the place where God digs in and says, whack, 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 blow to the head, blow to the head, blow to the head. Maybe that's not your issue. Like I said, maybe it's shame and condemnation you're carrying. And then Jesus' blow will be so gracious and loving and patient, saying, I'm going to unhook the zombie cart. Get rid of the zombie cart. And then you stand up straight and you walk in victory. Maybe it's about relationships with you. You've never learned to forgive when it's hard. You've never learned to make the decision that's other-oriented. So I'll tell you my story, and then later you can tell me yours. The first thing that happened to us probably 1998 was our our lease was up on our really nice Blazer, a two-year lease, and we usually then would go get another car, a nice new car. And we had this kind of profound thought after having sat in Woodland Hills for a couple years. We thought, what if we get a car we can afford? (laughs) Now, you know what that usually means? This is kind of a subtle distinction. Usually that means get a car you can afford the payments. See, And we always did that. But what we were actually saying is, let's get a car we could, like, pay for. So we pulled up in front of that nice five-bedroom house in Stillwater in, I think, like a 1990 Dodge Caravan with rust, (laughs) rust, yeah, 120,000 or so miles on it. And I think the neighbors thought we were going down. And we knew we were going (laughs) so up. I cannot tell you the freedom in making one decision that does not look like everybody else's. See, here we are going along. Oh, the lease is up. We have to get another car. And in one decision, we turned around and said, what does Jesus want us to do with our resources right now? And I cannot tell you how freeing it is to just make, this is a small decision. This is not eternity changing. This is not life changing, really. This is just kind of a small decision to say, hey, let's buy a $2,800 car. And it did run for a while. It's very powerful to make one decision because our cultural message is so strong. And for us to all of a sudden realize, I don't have to be a zombie. I don't have to go along with that. I can do something different. We also started realizing that from everywhere everywhere we went, this message of the culture of pursuing materialism was coming into our house, into our family, everywhere. Every grocery store you go in, every TV commercial you watch, every movie you see, every conversation you have, the churches that we attend... This message is everywhere. Look this way. Do this. Buy this. Here's how you know you're successful. And we had always kind of kept the TV in the basement because it bugs me. And we started to realize when we do watch TV, all of the commercials and all the messaging is get stuff. Look good. And you know, I preach sermons at home too, not just here. And so (laughs) I'd kind of been preaching the sermon on what is called planned obsolescence to my kids. You remember that one? Yeah, you were kind of excited about that sermon. Um, and what I was explaining to them is they make new, they make cars so that they will intentionally break. They they don't have to break after five years or whatever, but that's how they make them because then you got to buy a new one. And they change the styles of clothing because then you got to buy new stuff. And everything that you get, it's planned that will be obsolete within a certain number of years. So they have to spend more money. This is what keeps the culture going. And we just decided we weren't going to participate as much as we had been. So it started to be the case that when they were allowed to watch TV and commercials came on that sent the message that, oh, I need, I need that toy, Mom. Look, there's a new kind of Fruity Pebbles out. Lucky Charms has green ones now. We actually looked at the television, and my kids would say, that is a load of crap. <laughs> out loud. <clears throat> they did it. And you know what, I've seen them start to think a little bit differently about stuff. This is a small thing. It started to open our eyes, and especially with your kids. The TV, it's a great thing, but the TV is what's telling your kids all day, every day. Have stuff, buy stuff, be stuff, get thin. Get really, really thin. Get even thinner, be unhealthy. Get some new clothes. This is how you'll be happy. To the right gum, drive the right car, get the right toothpaste. All day, every day, over and over and over. And if you're going to have the TV on, at least teach them to look at it, and maybe us as adults need to do it. Look at it and say, "That." let's say it together. That is a load of crap. Okay, you guys work on that a little bit. (laughs) We started throwing away the catalogs that come in the mail, the insidious catalogs, because, you know, I realized I don't really need anything, but as soon as I opened up the catalog, there was really a lot of things I needed (laughs) soon. (laughs) And you can pay extra and get it overnighted. (laughs) So now we take them out of the mailbox and we put them in the recycle bin because we don't need anything. And the lie of the catalog is that we do. We started shopping at thrift stores. And we went there one time to get a sweater for Connor to be in a drama at school. He had to get a 70s-looking thing. So while we were in there, Hadley, my daughter, went running over to the girls' clothes, and she came back with this $3 shirt she was very excited about. And she said, we could do our school shopping here. (laughs) And I was like, score! (laughs) Sometimes I think they're a little worried, like, "I, I don't have any shorts that fit me are we going to have to go to the thrift stores? (laughs) It can be kind of taxing. One thing that really is a little bit different than the financial issues I've been dealing with is just the issue of your family's time. My daughter is a swimmer, and she was going to swimming in the fall three or four times a week, And then she'd have meets on the weekends. And some of you have spent your lives, like we were, going to sit at soccer fields and basketball stadiums and football fields and swimming pool, things where it's 97 degrees in there and the humidity is 300%. This was our life. We weren't home before dark a lot of the days. We weren't together as a family. We weren't eating dinner. Parking lot's an awful lot. See how that works? If I just pause, it comes back. So there we were, sitting outside, sitting inside, sitting at the meets. And we had this kind of awe-inspiring thought when it came time in March to sign up for the next session. Hey, what if we don't do swimming this session? Now, if you talk to some of your neighbors, they'll be like, your kid's going down. They're gonna fail high school, they're gonna be a dropout, they're gonna be living on the street out of a shopping cart. I mean, this is the message of middle-class America, am I right? You people know, you've been sitting in those pool pools and sweating your high knees off. This was our world. And Hadley said, hey, it's getting nice out. The neighbors are coming out. I'd kind of like to just run up and down the alley and meet people. And she's 11 and we're not really heading for the Olympics. You know, sports are supposed to be fun. I don't know if we've forgotten that. And so we just didn't do it. And she might do it again. And I'm not saying take your kids out of all the sports. The point of the story is just that you can make decisions that go against culture. And quitting a sport or taking some time off from it doesn't mean your kid is going to be a failed student, homeless, lifeless loser for the rest of her life. So far, Hadley's doing fine. A year and a half ago, my husband Dave lost his job. He got laid off. And the normal thing when that happens is then you rush around all panicked and you get another job, and hopefully you can even get paid more money. Well, the job, my husband's a computer consultant, and all those jobs involve a lot of travel. He'd been fortunate enough not to travel for the last several years. So we had a big decision. What are we going to do? We want to have our family now off going all directions? Do we need any more money? Maybe we need less money. And so we made the decision that my husband was going to be self-employed and work three days a week. My husband is gifted in the areas of mercy and compassion and helps, and what he really wanted to do with his life was to go into the inner city of Detroit where we were living at the time and fix the houses of people who had no one to fix it, who couldn't afford it, who had 10 or 15 people living in a house and their toilet didn't work or their shower didn't work, their roof leaked, their furnace didn't function. They were heating the house with their stove. This is what he wanted to do. He was like 41 years old at the time. So if you're 41 and what you really want to do is A, and what you're doing all the time exclusively is B, when will you make a decision? Will you wait till you're 50 to decide to pursue A? When do you get around to fixing the toilets of people in need? When do you get around to answering the call of God? Do you have to be 65 and retired? Could you get along on a little less income? These are the questions that we're asking ourselves. And so that's what he did. He worked three days a week doing what he had to do to pay the bills. And the other two, he had experienced a joy and a freedom that he hadn't experienced before. Now, he wants to do that again here. But what happened to us here is that we bought a house uh, in the inner city. Now, this wasn't, we didn't buy a house in the inner city here because that's all we could afford. We bought a house in the inner city here because this was part of the journey to say we can live on less, we can live in smaller. And so now what my husband does those two days a week is he fixes our house where the toilets don't work and the showers. <laughs> He'll get done with that and get on to the city. But I bought a house in East St. Paul. And the cool thing is when my daughter made the decision that she was going to take this time off swimming and she went running around in the alley, God used her as a little networker. And she met every kid, people of all different nationalities and languages. And she hooked us up with their parents and introduced us to people. And now we have 20 kids in our backyard all the time playing basketball, coming in for popsicles. She bakes some cookies. And if if we would have thought that we had to follow the cultural norm, if we had to go swimming five days a week, then we would have missed out on, I think, what God is doing in and through Hadley by being a minister in our neighborhood. So these are little things. Some of them are small. Some of them are pretty inconsequential. But for our family, these are the journey where God is lovingly and gradually bonking us in the head and it took a while and we have a long way to go and I feel sometimes now like an alien how do you act out an alien but I don't ever feel like a zombie and I suppose since we're called aliens and strangers here that it's better to be the alien than the zombie This leads me to, on a little diatribe, because this has been bugging me. I think what happens when we're all, sometimes we follow Jesus, and we're still walking like a zombie toward the grave. We haven't realized the freedom he offers and the vision that he has for us, and so we're walking like a zombie. And I think what happens is that really impacts how we evangelize, how we invite people into the good news. If we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then it's gonna impact the world in a transforming and amazing way. But if we're walking like a zombie toward the grave and we try to give people the good news and they look in our life and they say, you're just like me. I don't know what's different. Why would I want this? Our evangelism will not be powerful. When we think that evangelism is about getting people to change their mental opinion about certain truths, and certainly that's a part of it, but if we think that's all it is, then we miss out on the fact that God really wants to bonk these people on the head. They're in need of a blow to the head. They're in need of a transforming, amazing experience with God. They are not looking for something new and true to just believe, to assent to, really. And they don't any more than we do want to be zombies marching toward the grave. They're looking not just for something worth living for, but something worth dying for. And if we in the church are not modeling that kind of life, if we are not in fact marching with joy toward eternity and loving people all along the way, then maybe when we give them this kind of halfway gospel, the one that's just about assenting to some opinions, then we're just creating kind of zombies with a Jesus patch. And I think the more God calls us out of living the way everybody else is living, the more our neighbors look at us and say, you're non-zombified. I want to be non-zombified. I think I made up a word. I'm going to write a book. Maybe that's what I can do in my spare time. I'm going to write a book called Blow to the Head Evangelism. (laughs) Would you like to receive this loving blow to the head? You know, when you do blow to the head evangelism, you don't even usually need to say anything because you're living a victorious, alive, transformed life. And people say, whatever he's got, that's what I want. Amen. That's the evangelism we're called to. So does your life look like that good news? Are people looking at you and saying, that's what I want? You're not in financial straits. That's what I want. You love people who are really hard to love. That's what I want. You know your neighbors' names. You love them. You share in community deeply with people. That's what I want. You're content no matter what happens. That's what I want. Somehow, You're out of this busyness that I live in the midst of. Somehow you have time for substantive things. That's what I want, give me a blow to the head. Or are you like I was, doing the zombie thing, doing the zombie dance? You know, at the end of our lives we get to look back. When we look back, we're either gonna see that we took the risk, we did the adventure, we made radical decisions, we stepped out of the cultural norms, We followed Jesus in an amazing way. We failed sometimes. We succeeded sometimes. Sometimes we were shipwrecked. Sometimes we suffered and it was hard. But we lived life to the full. We had the abundant life that Christ offers. Or are you going to look back and say, well, I had a nice house and some cars and my kids were wearing gap clothes. Are you going to fall into the arms of Jesus at the end of this life? You have served him well. It's been hard at times. Are you going to fall into his arms and say, I am so glad you woke me up? Or are you going to fall into your grave with shopping bags? <laughs> Amen. You get to choose with this one life, and I promise you that Jesus has so much more for you. I'm going to leave you with just a couple of action steps. One of them relates to our ministry spotlight today. This is a journey best undertaken in community. Because when you're trying to come against every message, every commercial, every TV show, every movie, every, everything, every billboard, you cannot do it alone. You need people in it with you who are saying, let's paint bullseyes on each other's forehead and ask Jesus to give us a blow to the head. And let's pray for each other while we do that. <laughs> And let's speak truth. And the more you talk to people, the more you get a sense that God is at work. And the more you have hope that the hard decisions you're making are the right ones. You know, when we first got rid of our really nice big house and we moved into the city, I kept saying that I had a trashy house in the city. And it was just a joke. I kind of, you know, speak strongly. And I just got so convicted because I realized... I don't have a trashy house in the city. I have a house that's nicer than 97% of the people who inhabit this planet. I have a really nice house in the city. I just got rid of some bells and whistles. And it's in community that people point out those errors in thinking. And the second thing is you just have to take one step. See, I like to take 100 steps all at the same time. And sometimes that's debilitating to the point where you take none. And that's why God was so gracious to us by starting out by tapping and getting a little bit stronger because the van thing was just one step. And it was a pretty easy step. But the freedom we experienced in the one decision took us further along the road. And these are things you have one step opportunities, whether it's in relationships, finances, materialisms, sins that you're struggling with, shame and guilt. There's always one step, it's the baby steps thing, right? One thing at a time. Jesus wants to influence your decisions. Jesus wants to make a difference in every part of your life. I'm amazed at how often I speak to people and realize that they make most of their decisions, like me, like I have done so often, without even consulting Jesus. How do my decisions look different than they would if I didn't know Jesus? And that gets down to the suffering and self-sacrifice part. When we choose the other, when we choose to deny ourselves, that's something that can only be done through Christ. And he wants to get in on that. He wants to influence your decisions. And there's just one small one that you can start with. And that's going to be different for you than it was for me. Here's the vision Paul lays out for us in Colossians 3. This is a beautiful vision. It's a freeing vision. If you have been raised with Christ, and we have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You have received the loving blow to the head. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there is no better place to be. Let's pray. God, some of us just need to know, we need to know so much that we are hidden with Christ in God. That that is what's most true about us that we really have died to this life. And that's the freeing message. And I just pray that you would speak that into each of us, into the deepest places, so that we would hear from you. And we know that often you speak in that still, small voice, but we're asking you today to speak louder and to give us ears to hear and to fully take that in and say, I believe my identity is found in Christ. I believe that I can stop walking like a zombie. I believe that you have empowered me to be transformed, to be loving, to be self-sacrificing. I believe you have a vision just for me. And God, we pray that you would show up with that vision and that you would give us the courage to act on it one step at a time. And I thank you that you love us enough to pursue us I pray that there would be no shame or condemnation. You have been so gracious to me, and I pray for each person that you would remove any, in the name of Jesus, remove any shame or condemnation with this message and help them to see that you are always willing to start today with where we are, no matter what we did yesterday or last week. Speak that freedom and joy and grace into each person as they further this journey with you. And I pray these things in the name of this radical, loving, self-sacrificing Jesus who loves us amen. If you need prayer for anything, there are people at the front. If you need a blow to the head and you want to follow Jesus, there's a table over on my right and your left. God bless and have a great day.